Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I'm glad you all are here. My wife and I uh, drove up from Santan just a little while ago, and we got in one of the most uh, amazing rainstorms. Not something you really expect in Phoenix. Um, it was so intense that uh, the windshield wipers on high were totally, completely ineffective, and people were pulled over by the hundreds alongside the road, and, and uh, we uh, moved along slowly. We got here, and uh, so it's not what I expected. We, um, my wife and I, Chris, um, Chris and my wife and I, um, have a long history with this church. In fact, um, I am I am a great um, advocate for what you're doing at I, IBCS. In fact, my wife was one of the first students of the college when it first started, and we lived here. And Dr. Singleton was a uh, dear friend, and now Brother. Ken Endine has become one of my dearest friends, and there's many great friends that I have in this church. We're thrilled to be here. One of the great, um, <clears throat> great things about Dr. I, I was Dr. Singleton's probably his best friend until this incident happened over at the other facility. I was working with um, uh, Brother Keith Roberts around the grounds when we were home, and um, he said, these trees have just grown up and they're encroaching upon the buildings at the school. And he said, but boy, Dr. Singleton would have a fit. He planted these trees by his own hands. And he said he would be so upset, you know, if we did anything to these trees. He said, but they got to go. They just got to go. I said, well, I got a chainsaw. So I, I went home, got a chainsaw. And um, wouldn't you know it? And, and Dr. Singleton was my just dear friend. And and I guess he heard the sound of this uh, little two-stroke chainsaw, you know. And, and uh, man, he came around the corner. I could hear him over the roar of the chainsaw. He said, Jonathan, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, Keith told me to do this. <laughs> it worked really great. But I, but I still, I, I don't think he ever forgave me for, he said, Jonathan, I planted those trees in my own hands. I said, but yeah, Doc, but they've, they've grown up and they're, they're, they're rubbing against the buildings and they're not safe and we need to take them out. He goes, oh, it just hurts me, it just hurts me. But my wife was one of the first students here and we were here for about a year and a half, during which time I, we started Faith Baptist Church in Salina, Utah. We started in Salt Lake City, had a, had a, started a church there. And then between churches, we were here. She was going to school. And every week, I had a little 1974 Subaru station wagon, and we'd take off. I would take off at 10 o'clock Thursday night, every Thursday night for a year. And I would drive 550 miles every Thursday night into Friday morning. And, um, and, and we had a little mobile home, and I'd land there dead tired. I would fall asleep usually on the floor. We'd have Bible study Friday night at, uh, for Faith Baptist Church. That's how the church got started in somebody's home. Then we started holding services <clears throat> that I'd preach Sunday morning, Sunday night. And after the Sunday night service, at about 7 o'clock, I would get back in the car and drive all the way back to Phoenix, 550 miles, and get here just in time to watch our two boys. My wife went off to school, and she usually come home. I'd be passed out on the floor, and the boys were, you know, tearing up the house. Um, but that was our life for a year. 
doing that every week, 550 miles each way, so 1,100 miles every week to preach and start a church up in South Central Utah. Um, <clears throat> we are so um, grateful to be here and uh, to be able to uh, hopefully challenge these college-age uh, students, these college students, as they begin a new uh, academic year here at International Baptist College and Seminary. I'm grateful for uh, Brother Messler. He has been, uh, he's becoming one of my dear friends, and I just appreciate his spirit. We had him speak at our Northwest Baptist Conference last year. He did a great job, and he spoke at our camp this year, and I just heard nothing but great reports from that. Um, <clears throat> you say, how did you go from planting churches? We planted three churches, and I helped a couple of other ones, to traveling most of the time. And it kind of started this way. Um, I was asked to perform a wedding in Des Moines, Iowa. And one of our young men grew up and went to Faith Baptist. I'm sorry, I know that's not a uh, pleasant word for you to hear, but he went there. And he um, graduated, met uh, Molly. They were having the wedding there in Des Moines. So Chris and I flew up for the wedding. I said, have you ever seen the, she hadn't, I knew she hadn't seen the school up in uh, Faith and Ankeny, so we drove up there for a day, and we got there, and we found out that uh, Baptist Church Planters was having like a once every three year conference there, they had all their church planters there for this conference, and I walked into the lobby there, and a guy was sitting there, you know, you see people, you don't see people there, and they're not in their context, and he stood up, he said, Jonathan Edwards, what are you doing here? I didn't recognize him at first. And um, he, he was a missionary with um, Baptist Church Planters. And I said, I finally recognized him and we, we got talking. I said, what's going on? He told me, he said, they're about ready to finish the session, but you're welcome to stay. And uh, there's people in there that you would know. So we went in, I met some people and talked to them that we knew. And one of our friends said, why don't you just stay for a session? So we did. They did a, they had kind of a MC sort of a guy, and between sessions, he said, there's about 100, 100 people, 100 missionaries. He said, what I want you to do, he said, I want you to get up out of your seats, and I want you to group up according to the decade you were born in. There was actually somebody that was uh, ministering there that was born in 1938, I still remember that. Had some in the 40s, a whole bunch of the 50s, and the 60s. The 70s, there were three. The 1980s, there was two. And in 1990, that decade, one. 100 people. And I don't know if it affected anybody else the way it did me, but I went, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. And there is a reason that churches are going a year and two and three without pastors. It's because we're not regenerating ourselves. The pool has evaporated and we've got to get, I'm so glad to be here and hopefully challenge some of these young people to give their lives for full-time service. And you parents, you have responsibility to challenge your young people to the high and holy calling of God. I don't think there's uh, a greater calling that you can be involved in if God wills that you pursue that. So we're praying that some young people this week will be challenged and uh, encouraged in this way. 
I've never really done this before, but I've chosen um, five axioms for life. And there's a, there's a lot of latitude when you preach this way, okay? So you can, you've got to figure out where you're going to go with it. The first one, though, really is not one I had a lot of latitude with. And it comes from, uh, and again, I'm not, uh, the, the, the endorsement isn't for the person that uh, gave the axiom. It, it's for the axiom, okay? And this one comes from Danny Aiken. He's the uh, president of Southwest um, Baptist Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. And, you know, um, this to me is ground zero. This is why I chose this as the first axiom. And the axiom is this. Um, Dr. Aiken said, We must take our stand on the firm foundation of the inerrant and infallible Word of God, affirming its sufficiency in all matters. Isn't that a good axiom for life? And I believe it's foundational for everything else that you, uh, that you glean in life. Such an important axiom. Um, it's a statement. What, what is an axiom, by the way? It's a statement of proposition, which is regarded as being um, established, accepted, or self-evidently true. And I think this axiom meets the criteria of an axiom. Some of you uh, students that are here tonight are beginning your journey. You're freshmen. You're just starting out. Some of you here are going to be finishing an advanced degree. And between those two bookends, there's a whole bunch of you. <laughs> Somewhere in between that. There's absolutely nothing that you will learn in your college career of greater importance than the truth that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And upon it, we must stand. There's nothing more important that you will learn. And everything you learn, I know because I appreciate this institution, will be based on that. I pray that this axiom that um, will become your heart focus from now until the day that God calls you home to be with Him. That everything you do will be based upon the inerrant and infallible Word of God. What are we left with if we choose not to believe in that axiom? Well, we kind of are left with uh, postmodernistic thought. And what is that? You may ask. Well, the postmodernist generally believes there's no absolutes. It, it is a, by the way, it's a ridiculous uh, position to hold. But it is um, that which probably a majority of college-age young people and older people hold today. They hold to this. They may not even know what, is, what the title is, but they hold to this <coughs> philosophy. Um, what postmodernism says, well, it may be truth to you, but it's not truth to me, nor is it maybe truth to someone else. It just kind of becomes truth to the person. And you know what, I, I've, I've kind of followed, I've kind of followed some blogs of really leading light, if there can be such a thing, 
uh, postmodernist. What cracks me up is when they talk about the postmodernist movement, what it is, they define it in very dogmatic terms. I guess they don't see the irony in that. It's very ironic. So what a person decides is truth becomes truth. The insanity of that position is, is just jaw-dropping. And right now, we are witnessing the results of millions upon millions of people who may not even know what they're subscribing to, but they hold to that position. And it is the reason that we have so much chaos and violence in our nation right now. It really is. It's what's behind it. And it's because people have no foundation for life. You know, I praise the Lord in recent days we've seen a Supreme Court with at least enough gumption to, to overrule a law that never should have been on the books. And I, I praise the Lord for their courage in doing that. But you know, even though we applaud that, we still kind of yawn every day when we hear about some mass shooting somewhere. We just kind of yawn. We've gotten um, anesthetized to it. We see it so much. And it is based on this philosophy. The master chef, 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 Satan, has concocted a very toxic brew. And you add to postmodernism the fatalistic theory of evolution, which teaches that man is no more than an animal. In fact, there are some animals that have more value than men. And it is a wonder is it any wonder that blood flows in our streets? And we see it every day. It's not just like this is an anomaly. It has become, and we just kind of yawn. We go, well, it's another one. It's one more. And we don't even know how to process this. There's no absolutes. And man has value that is maybe less than a skunk. You figure out what will happen. And we are watching it being played out before our eyes every day. Well, we all know, and we're painfully aware what the problem is. And my purpose in being here is not to um, highlight the problem. We know what the, well, maybe we don't know exactly all that's behind it, and hopefully this has helped a little bit, but we know there's a problem. The the. The question is, what exactly can we do to counter it? How can we fix it? In the sports world, we um, have all heard about trick plays. And you know what? We, we see the political world right now. They're trying to fix things, but it's all a bunch of trick plays. But let me tell you what wins sporting events in the long term, is an adherence to the fundamentals. You have to adhere to the fundamentals and not rely upon trick plays. And we've got a lot of legislative things going on right now that to me are just a bunch of trick plays. They're just trying to fix this a little bit and, and make it not so bad. This ultimately brings us back to this hard issue. It takes us back to axiom number one. We believers in Jesus Christ must take our stand upon the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
affirming its sufficiency in all matters. A well-worn adage, and I think you all know it, you've probably heard it many times, but it's absolutely true. There is a God, and He has spoken. It's just that simple. And we have the results of that in our laps tonight, called the Bible, the Word of God. There is a God, He has spoken. But can we fathom such a God? Can we really fathom such a God? Is it possible for us to really grasp even Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can we grasp that? Or do we kind of stand silent as did Job when God spoke to him out of the whirlwind starting in Job chapter 38? And this is my own paraphrase of this, and I think it's, uh, I think it's verse 4 of chapter 38. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Go ahead and tell me all about it if you think you are so smart. Tell me. And then for four chapters, four chapters starting in chapter 38, God schools Job basically schools him on Genesis 1-1. verses, to be exact, God explains Genesis 1-1 to Job. And again, Job fell silent. There was nothing he could say when he was confronted with the greatness of the great creator God. You know, I, I, I fear that we as believers spend far too little time really contemplating the greatness of God. We just get so caught up in the everyday routine of things, and it's going to be the same with you college students. You're going to, be, you're going to have the fire hose turned on here real soon, <laughs> and you're going to find out. And you go, there, there's no time to think about anything else. We need to constantly contemplate who God is. Such an important thing, as he has revealed himself. April 24th, 1990, does anybody know what the significance of that date is? It is when the space shuttle Discovery released the Hubble telescope into orbit. And of course they had some technical glitches they had to work through. They had, in fact, it was a few months before the thing got functioning because they had to go up and they had to fix some things on the telescope. But it's just, it's just orbiting Earth. But it, it gave us a glimpse into space that we have never seen before. Human eye had never seen. And the pictures were stunning. I, I, if you can remember seeing the first uh, pictures that we saw coming back from the fixed uh, Hubble telescope, they were amazing. And I think we began to realize the vastness and the beauty of God's creation is just overwhelming. Well, right now, we have the a satellite, a new one. It's the James Webb Telescope. And it is a million miles away from Earth right now. Think about that. It is actually in a kind of a weird orbit around the sun, but is keeping the earth in line as it orbits the sun. This telescope has infrared technology. 
And we've just started to get images back from the, the Webb telescope. I don't know if you've seen them, but they are absolutely stunning. Unbelievable. And it kind of makes the Hubble look like the Model T compared to a brand new Ferrari, okay? It is a whole different dynamic. And we look at that and we go, wow, man, we are so smart to be able to come up with a technology to put that into space and to get these images back where we can see these things. And wow, space is just a whole lot bigger than we thought it was. Let me tell you something. And somebody, this isn't original, I saw it somewhere. Somebody said, if you take a grain of rice in your finger and you go out on a night uh, away from the city lights and you go out where it's really dark and you can see the heavens and it's not um, occluded with clouds and you hold that grain of rice up at arm's length, everything we have seen in the universe can be completely covered by that grain of rice held at arm's length. Think about that. Think about that. And what we're getting back from the Webb telescope is not a single drop in all the oceans of the world. That's how great God is. And this God has spoken. And we have on our hands the very written word of the Creator God. Do you see why axiom number one is so important? It's absolutely critical. We must take our stand upon the firm foundation of the inerrant and infallible Word of God affirming its sufficiency in all matters. So I ask you, how important is the Word of God to you? How important is it to you? I've walked the, uh, in recent days, well, uh, within a year, within a year, I've walked the streets of the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. I don't know how many of you have been there. They, they show it on the news. But the thing the news media cannot capture about the Tenderloin District is the smell. It's bad. It's far worse than any news broadcast can possibly relay. But you see the sights and you smell the smells of sin ravaged humanity. That's exactly what it is. It's beyond anything that you can imagine. But the solution to all of that is found in the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And what is the modern church doing today to deliver the life-changing, liberating message of God to our very messed up world? Obviously not enough. I... Um, I enjoy technology to a degree, but I hate technology. <laughs> it, 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 it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And we have time, and we assign great value to posting on social media what we had for dinner. What is that going to do for a sin-ravaged society? Who really cares? Recently, I was in a home. My wife was there. I walked into a conversation two young couples were having, the married couples were having at a, at a table. And I noticed that, and by the way, all four people had grown up in solid Bible preaching fundamental churches. 
three of them had graduated from Christian universities. And when I walked into the room, my wife, I think, was just kind of, kind of close by. I noticed the conversation changed all of a sudden when I walked in the room where they were. And later that evening, I talked to my wife. I said, boy, that was really odd. I said, you know, I know these couples. And I said, I, I, it was really odd how, how the conversation changed when I walked into the room. She said, well, you know what they're talking about, don't you? I go, not a clue. They were talking about a rock concert they were going to go to. Our world will not be positively influenced by food selfies, nor by going to rock concerts. But it can be transformed by the very word of God. Our world's on fire. And that can only be extinguished by the inerrant, infallible word of the creator. God, Jeremiah wrote, he said, is not my word like a fire. It's kind of like you have to fight fire with fire in this regard. Is not my word like fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And, and fire and the hammer are emblematic of conviction that brings revival. It's really what it's a picture of. It's necessary for souls to be converted, lives to be changed. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 12 tells of people who, through their sin, have made their hearts as an adamant stone. What can break the, the hard hearts of humanity? What can do that? The hammer of God's word. It has the power to do that. And millions upon countless millions of Bibles are sitting on tables and shelves or being carried under the arm by professing believers. But I'll tell you what, they are of no value whatsoever unless this message is unleashed on our sin-wrecked world. We have to get the message out. And that will not happen until Christians get serious and start taking their stand upon this inerrant, infallible word of God. We must do that. And that's not going to happen until believers in Christ and the challenge is for you tonight to become serious students of the Word of God. You don't have to be enrolled in IBCS to be a student of the Word of God. Determine that you will become an apologist. And we can become so accustomed to being spoon-fed the Word of God by just showing up at Sunday school or church or in a classroom where the Bible is taught and we have it spoon-fed to us. We need to learn to be self-feeders. We need to learn to ingest the Word of God on our own. And the things that you get on your own will be the things that you will always remember. They'll stick with you. And they'll be effective. So, we've had this real anomaly here. Rain, really amazing rain in Phoenix. So tomorrow morning, you get up, you go, I am going to read my Bible today. You go, ah, where'd it go? Oh, it's in the car. And, it, um, and the car is in the driveway. 
And it's pouring rain out like we just saw it here a little while ago. You're going, man, I really want to read my Bible today, but man, I don't want to get wet. I don't want to go out there and retrieve my Bible out of the car. I, I had it in church yesterday and I just left it in the car. And, and I really, I think I'll just skip the reading today because I don't want to inconvenience myself. I don't want to go out there and I don't want to get wet and get my Bible. You know, and it might, I, I, don't, I don't want my Bible to get wet so we can come up with all these excuses. But let me ask you this. How would you feel if you left your phone in the car? What will motivate us to be eager self-feeders of the Word of God? I believe it is coming to an understanding of the nature of the book that we have in our hands. We really need to understand its nature. And understand the nature of the book, we need to understand the fundamental nature of the God who wrote the book. As the axiom states, this book is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. How can you be such an absolutist and use words like that? The postmodernists would say. I mean, those are unmalleable words, inerrant, infallible. I'll tell you how we can do that because those words are anchored in the theology of who God is. You have to believe that. It's an integral truth of the axiom. It is self-evident because God is who He is. His word must be inerrant and infallible. That's, that's the answer. Let's take a little quiz. I'm just getting you college students ready, okay? Do you, do you sitting here tonight, do you believe that Jesus is God? I heard, amen, that's good. You believe that? Good. Um, But can you defend? Can you defend that belief from Scripture? The scriptural evidence that he is indeed God, I believe, is legion. It's, it's everywhere you look in Scripture. But do you know how to defend that? You and I need to become apologists. Study this out. I'm going somewhere with this. Jesus said, and this is going to be kind of where we're going to be looking tonight, so you can take your Bibles, if you will, turn to John chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10. And I'm just going to give you a phrase first, then we're going to build context around it that Jesus spoke. John 10, 35, Jesus said at the end of the verse of John 10, 35, he said, the Scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. You say, well, what does that mean? I believe that um, it is Jesus affirming the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. But to really build the case and not just do a standalone on one little phrase in a verse, I, I believe that that is absolutely true. The scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said it. 
but I think we need to look at the context here to really appreciate what he said. Let's look at the near context first, starting in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods, small g. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father has sanctified and sent unto the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. What in the world is all this about? This is really one of those kind of odd passages of Scripture. But to me, when you come to understand what Jesus is saying here in context, it just adds strength to the argument. The scripture cannot be broken. In our part of the world, and in your part of the world down here in the greater Phoenix area, we have all kinds of religionists. We are surrounded by religionists who use these two verses to teach that men can become gods. They believe that. And they base it on this passage of scripture. Ye shall become gods. Now, they have never bothered to do any research whatsoever. They're just parroting what they've been told. But are they right? And we are wrong. Men can become gods. What do you think? I hope you shake your head no. And you're saying, no, we're right. They're wrong. But again, can you prove that? Can you prove that? How do you explain this passage? Now we need to understand in context, in the broader context, that Jesus is talking to a group of people here who do not believe that he is God. They do not believe in his deity. So he took them to the Old Testament. The Old Testament passage here is Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, Ye are God's. And again, the context is all important in Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is not teaching that men could become gods. No, in fact, it is a condemnation of corrupt judges. It says condemnation of these corrupt judges. And their proper role should have been to act in the stead of God. But they weren't doing that. They obviously were not doing that. And so the psalmist referred to these judges as gods, notice small g, not because they were actual deity, but because they were acting as God in their role as judges. And Jesus quotes that passage here in John chapter 10. There's a man named Leon Morris, and he wrote a book, uh, The Gospel According to John. And I thought that his... um, his take on this was just spot on. And he's writing from Jesus' perspective. It's as if Morris writes, but he's using the words of Jesus here. So just follow the quote here. He said, If mere men can be called gods because of their position as judges, then how much more should I, whom the Father sanctified and sent to the world, be called the Son of God? And then Morris continues... And he says, Jesus is not, and I, I wrote in my notes, absolutely is not. 
He said, Jesus is not classing himself among men. Rather, he separates and distinguishes himself from men. Now with this said, let's zoom out to the greater context. The context is Jerusalem. Go go clear out to uh, verse 23. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And Jesus answered them, I, 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 and well, then came the Jews round about him and said to him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. This was Jesus' answer. He said, I, I told you, and you believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but ye believe not. Drop down to verse 30. I and my Father are one. Let me tell you, in that verse, only modern pseudo-theologians have skewed this verse to mean something like Jesus was simply saying that I and my Father are one in purpose. Now, that is a lie. That is an absolute lie. Jesus is affirming the fact that he and his Father are one in essence. They are one in essence. These Jews understood exactly the claim that Jesus was making here by their response. What did they, how did they respond? Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Their response was immediate. And they would not have been in such a, a, a violent, visceral response if Jesus was just simply, well, the Father and I are just one in purpose. That would not have affected them in this way at all. They wouldn't have responded this way, but they did. Because they understood that he was claiming full deity. They understood the implications of his claim, I and my Father are one. Upon what evidence did Jesus base his claim of verse 30? Back to verse 25. The works tell the story. My works validate who I am. The miracles validate who I am. They bear witness of me, verse 25. Notice also verse, the first part of 32. Jesus answered, many good works have I showed you from my Father. And they patently rejected all of those miracles. Back to verse 24. Again, just track here. The Jews came around and they said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> he did. What greater evidence could there be than these class A miracles that they saw over and over and over again, and the greatest of which was yet future would be his own bodily resurrection from the dead. And many of these same people would witness that and they would still reject him. And reject who he was. And the greater point being this, who Jesus is, God in the flesh, the one with the authority to which he could say, the scripture cannot be broken. Now, doesn't that have some meat to it? This book is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is a powerful, to me, 
thing to study that out. This book we hold in our hands is still true to the words of Jesus. It can't be broken. And it will remain the inerrant, infallible word of God while earth shall last and right into eternity. It will always be the inerrant, infallible word of God. It cannot be broken. And it all is based on who God is. Back to the axiom. We must take our stand on the firm foundation of the inerrant and infallible word of God, affirming its sufficiency in all matters. <clears throat> is this book really sufficient for all matters on planet Earth? I hope you agree. And just because you have exceptional skill, greater than almost anybody on planet Earth, to take a round ball and throw it into a hoop that's 10 feet off the plane of the playing floor with more skill than anybody else in the world does not mean, does not qualify you to speak concerning the moral and ethical issues that are facing our world. And just because you can sing or act does not make you some kind of environmental guru. My question is, and most of those people believe in evolution. If you truly believe in evolution, then you have to believe in the survival of the fittest. And I see these people going out, and they've got to protect our environment, they've got to save our environment. I go, if you believe in the survival of the fittest, why do you even care? What does it matter? Are you trying to disrupt the theory of evolution that you believe in, you claim to believe in? I believe it's a legitimate question. But crushing all the pontifications of, of sinful, godless humanity is the righteous hammer of God's word. There is a God. And my friends, tonight he has spoken. He has spoken. And we hold in our hands the literal, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of this God. And Dr. Aiken said we must take our stand on this firm foundation. So we kind of wind down here tonight a little bit. I'd like you to take your Bibles, go to 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, in the first chapter. And the first um, four verses of the first chapter of 2 Peter, <clears throat> Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises." that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The knowledge of God and Jesus is found in the sacred volume that we have in our, 
What would we know about God and Jesus if we didn't have the Bible? I mean, we have the general creation and, you know, the things that we can see that have been made, but they don't tell specifically about the nature of God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus. All things pertaining to life and godliness and glory and virtue we have in the pages of this book that we have in our hands tonight. I love the adjectives in verse 4, don't you? They're not just promises of God, but what? They're exceeding great and precious promises. I did an insane thing a few years ago. I decided to read the, the complete journals of Lewis and Clark. Let me tell you, Meriwether Lewis was not really versed in grammar. And, uh, and his, his journal entries are just amazing. And he gets up into Montana on their trip up, and at the end of the uh, journal entry of the day, he goes, um, mosquitoes are bothersome. <laughs> the next day's journal entry, mosquitoes are very bothersome. The third day, mosquitoes are very exceeding bothersome. And he just keeps adding adjectives every day for like a week and a half. And it gets, it gets hilarious. I mean, there's a whole string of adjectives here. But this is, this is really striking to me. We are given exceeding great and precious promises. What does the Word of God mean to you? It is full of promises. And they're not just shallow, hollow promises. These come from the God who wrote the book. And they're exceeding. They're great. And they're precious promises. Stand on the foundation of this book. That is our responsibility. It is singular. And again, the fire hose of academics is going to be unleashed. And it's been a few years... <laughs> It's been quite a few years since I sat where you sat. But I've been there. And um, I, I know that you're going to be inundated with reading, reports, and quizzes, and tests, and lectures, and all of that. I, I did a really an insane thing in my college career. I took 11 hours in summer school, one summer school. And then I took two semesters of 19 hours each. And my wife can attest, I would come, we lived a little country home out, out quite a ways out, and I would stack up the books at night and just stare at them. You just don't know where to start, right? Just this pile of books, where do you start? Which one is the most important? It's going to be like that for you. And all that to say, don't neglect the book. Don't neglect the book. Temptation to do so will be an everyday battle. But don't neglect the book. Say, well, I just don't have time today. 
And this isn't to shame anybody, but I dare say that probably half of you here tonight have never read your Bible all the way through. I think that's probably pretty fair. Probably half of you have never read the Bible all the way through in your life. You've read here and there, and you've, you've been trying to be faithful, but you just read hit and miss, hit and miss, hit and miss. Or use a little devotional book. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's something. Something's better than nothing. And I don't say this to shame you. I say this to motivate you. It's not it's going to be very practical. Fact number one. How can we expect to stand upon the book that we've never read? Just think about that. How can you expect to stand upon the book that you've never really seriously read all the way through? <clears throat> Fact number two. This is a good one. It will take you about 15 to 20 minutes every day to read the Bible all the way through this year. 15 to 20 minutes. That's all it will take. Believe me, I, I do it routinely. And typically, I, I read the Bible through at least a time and a half a year. But 15, 20 minutes all it takes to read the Bible all the way through in a year. And you say, seriously? Yes, seriously. That's the average reading speed. 15, 20 minutes. So, in what areas of your life can you trim 15 minutes so that you can spend 15 minutes reading God's Word that you say, I'm going to stand upon God's Word. Well, you need to read it. 15 minutes. What can you trim out of your life so you can create 15 minutes to read God's Word? Say, I'm serious about the Word of God. Make 15. You've probably already in your mind figured out where you could trim 15 minutes off of some extracurricular activities so that you can spend 15 minutes reading the Word of God this year. And there are so many good and varied Bible reading schedules. The last two years, I've read a chronological um, uh, method of reading through the Bible. It's very interesting. And there's even different, everybody has a different opinion about the chronology too, so I read a different one the year before than I'm reading this year. And chronology is really interesting, really interesting way. Some of them, um, my wife's doing one this year where she does uh, some in the Old Testament, some in the Psalms, some in the New Testament, and it, it works through that way. And that's, that's really good too. I've done that one too. You can go online, I promise you, by the time, um, I don't do it right now, but uh, wait till you get outside the doors. And you can find a Bible reading schedule that will just um, be great. And you can start tomorrow morning. Just pick one. Get started. I put it this way. The journey of 31,102 verses begins with the first verse. Start reading the Word of God. I know you've got a lot of reading to do, you students, but don't neglect 15 minutes reading the Word and make it your goal to read through it this year, all the way through, all the way through. Make it a priority. And my wife and I just delight. We're reading on different schedules, but we share almost daily the things that we are learning from God's Word every day. And you students, make it the cool thing on campus here to share the things that you're learning from God's Word every day. Do that.
So right here, right now, I'm asking you tonight, let's commit to axiom number one. We must take our stand on the firm foundation of the inerrant and infallible Word of God, affirming its sufficiency in all matters. God help you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that we have a new appreciation for that book that we hold in our hands tonight. And Lord, we know that the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said it. It will always remain the inerrant, infallible word of God. And Lord, may we be struck by the fact that we cannot really stand upon something that we don't know it. And we, we haven't taken the time to even read it. And I pray tonight that we would be duly challenged to read it through this year. Fifteen minutes a day. We'll take that time and show you honor and show your word honor. And Lord, I believe this will be transformational in the lives of these students and the lives of these members here at Tri-City Baptist. I pray they'll take up the challenge. Lord, I pray right now in the hearts of those sitting here, there'd be the resolve and say, I'm going to do this. I'm really going to do this. God helping me, I'm going to read his word all the way through this year. I pray that that would be so. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.